And so, you know, a lot of us have thousands of those pieces of plastic in our house. And so let's, let's get that behind-the-scenes story about where those costumes came from and what makes them so iconic. Absolutely. I mean, everything from the concept uh, paintings and drawings all the way through the sculpting of guys like Brian Muir and then the folks like John Marlowe who actually had to construct these costumes. You're going to hear all about it. And to guide us through it is the executive editor at Lucasfilm. We're going to bring him out right now. J.W. Rinsler. Yes. The podium is yours, sir. The podium is yours. So, uh, Jonathan, I can call you Jonathan, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so tell us what you do at Lucasfilm as the executive editor. Uh, well, as the executive editor, I basically oversee all the nonfiction, which means the making of behind-the-scenes books, looks like the costume book, uh, visual... Uh, dictionary, DK does, you know, a lot of books like that. And can we all agree that Jonathan's trilogy, The Making of Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, are just about the greatest chronicles of the making of any films ever? And I want to give a plug too for the digital editions. For those that didn't get the big coffee table versions, the digital editions are beautiful. They've got the embedded video and the audio, just fantastic. Yeah, a lot of people don't know the uh, digital editions exist, but uh, I did a lot of research in the film archives and dug up stuff that you like, like the blooper reel, which went viral on YouTube, but uh, yeah. there's a lot of other cool stuff in there. Okay, well Jonathan, let's get to it. Um, great to have you here. You've got some folks that you brought with you. We're going to take a step down and uh, watch as things unfold. Star Wars costumes. All right. So thank you very much. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So. I'm just going to be very brief. I want to introduce the author, uh, Brandon Allinger, and uh, the editor, Becker and Mayer, who packaged the book, uh, Delia Grev. Uh, Brandon was my research assistant on a Making of Jedi. He's sort of my Southern California assistant, working with Howard Kazanji. Oh, here you are, Brandon and William. Uh, and uh, it was really invaluable. Uh, you know, went into Howard Kazanjian's archives and uh, really helped make the book Making a Jedi what it is. And Delia really uh, deserves pretty much all the credit for the production side of the costume book. She had to go in there uh, and uh, I think we start, when did we start? 2010, I think. 2010, so about three or four years before the book was actually published. And uh, <clears throat> she had to photograph stuff, to get a photographer before it went off to an ex exhibit, and so we were planning this way in advance. And strange as it may seem, it was hard to find a publisher who wanted to do this book. You know, you got, for you, you're here, it's a no-brainer, no but people who are in publishing don't understand sometimes the power of Star Wars, and particularly the original costumes. I've been wanting to do this book since we did the prequel costume book in 2005. So it took us five years just to find somebody who was interested in doing it, and then another few years to get a distributor. So, uh, I think Brandon has some really cool stuff to show us, so I'm going to bring, turn it over to, you. actually, Delia, if you want to talk about the production first, and then we'll go to Brandon. Is this on? Okay. You can hear me? Awesome. Uh, so, as Jonathan mentioned, we uh, started in 2010, and he called and said, I think, I think we've got a book. So, we flew down, went to the archives, looked at the costumes, and I agreed, and then he said, Half of these are leaving for seven years, and you have one month. <laughs> so we quickly got a photographer in there, and the archive staff was 
packing them up to go on tour for museum as we were trying to unpack them and photograph them and put them back in. And uh, then we took those photographs and laid it out and shopped it around. It took us quite a while. And there was a huge database, which I think you and Brandon were, you know, created for every single piece of every single costume, which was pretty impressive. And so yeah, we created epic spreadsheets of every <laughs> little piece and went through the archives of what was there, what could we include, and of course the biggest question is what for us was defining what's costume, because you know, is it what's made in the costume shop, is it fabric, is it you know, the hard plastic pieces, which are technically not made by the costumers, um, and I think we came down to the decision, if there's a person inside, it's a costume, <laughs> with the exception of Yoda. <laughs> So then Brandon and I started uh, digging through all the archives. Which was the fun part. <laughs> uh, like Jonathan said, I, I got brought into this uh, through him after I worked with him on the Making Return of the Jedi book. And for me, I wanted to go into the Lucasfilm archive for years. I worked with him a little bit on the Jedi book, but that did not present the opportunity to go into the archive. So, you know. Going into the archives that first day, getting to see all that stuff in person was, was fantastic, it was overwhelming, and it was the start of a very fun journey. Um, and I think we should talk about that for a minute. I mean, really the reason that a book like this is possible is because the, the archives exist, because George Lucas had the foresight to archive these costumes, which is really a unique situation. You know, there aren't too many movies that you could go to 30, 40 years later and find all the original outfits in one place just there to be researched, photographed, cataloged for a book like this. Um, so it's really sort of an amazing opportunity and an amazing collection and it all kind of gelled to, to create this book. So uh, we've got some photos and I want to talk a little bit about the process of researching the book and then just show you guys some fun things that you know, I found very interesting when, when I discovered them in the process of researching the book. Uh, we'll get started. There's us. <laughs> this is the book. Hopefully you all know that because you all have it. You bought it. If not, uh, you can pro probably find it somewhere here for, sh for sale at the show. We're just going to show the trailer for the book. This is something that uh, was put together for promotion. on the costumes of the three original Star Wars films. Most impressive. We've had several trips here to the archives to research costumes, and the most significant highlight of the book is the photography that's going into it. They're shooting things that have never been photographed in this way before. It's going to be a great opportunity for fans to see something that hasn't been seen so clearly. Hi, I'm And see how things function together as costumes, and how one component of the costume integrates with another component, and the detail, and the amount of hours and effort that go into realizing these costumes on the screen. And we're going to get into some of the stories behind those things that haven't been covered before, and I think people are going to be fascinated by it. This is actually a stunt version. This is pretty great.
hold, hold on, Randy. And the funny thing about that video is that I was, I was proactive in the beginning. And when you guys were doing that work, I got a, our video team you know, for Lucasfilm up there to record you guys. I thought, eventually we're going to need this. And then I completely forgot about it. Until you sent me an email about three months or something before the book was coming out saying, are you going to do anything with that video stuff you shot? And I was like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> so let me ask you guys a question. Was it the best Star Wars trailer that you saw today? <laughs> We're not going to win that one, are we? <laughs> so beyond the archives where the physical costumes reside, we, we were very fortunate to have uh, several key resources, including three costume designers for Star Wars Empire and Jedi, which were, were John Malo, who did the first two films, and then Abby Rogers and Neil Rhodes Jamero, who did Return of the Jedi. Uh, and all three of them were very open and supportive with us. They were very happy to talk about the work they did, share stories, share memories, uh, you know, give us some of the insight in, in how these things came to be, into what George Lucas's directions were, what his thoughts were on, on how these things should look. Um, Aggie came down to the archives for a day. That was a lot of fun. You know, we got to physically look through the outfits with her and that definitely triggered some memories. John Mahler lives in England and Nilo Rose Jamero lives in Canada, so we didn't have the same opportunity with them, but I had several lengthy phone calls with each of them and they made themselves very available for follow-up questions, which is why the book has the information that, that it does, you know. Uh, it's just really their stories, and so we were very fortunate to have their support. And the other key person that, that really has to be mentioned is Ralph McQuarrie. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie. Obviously, legendary Star Wars artist uh, Ralph McQuarrie was so influential in establishing the look of many things in the Star Wars universe, including uh, costuming, you know, working from George Lucas's instructions to lay down the very first renditions of, of what these things were going to look like. Um, so we went through all of McQuarrie's costume sketches in the archives, and it was fascinating to see how things translated from his drawings to John Mahler's drawings to a three-dimensional, you know, tangible outfit that somebody could wear. Uh, so just to show you guys a little bit of the, the other resources that were available from a re research perspective, uh, these are some photos of John Mahler's working diaries. So these were his personal diaries that he had with him every day at Elstree Studios. You know, when he would have a meeting with George, he would get this book out, sit down, and, and start sketching it. And obviously he's preserved these and archived them over the years. And he made them available, so, you know, we got to look at all the notes, all the sketches, and, and they're looser sketches. He did more final sketches later, which are the ones that appear in the book, uh, and the ones that are present in the archive today. But there was some wonderful content here from, you know, just little scribbles from meetings and things that you would never get out of having a conversation with somebody 35 years later. But because it's there on paper, you can reference it as, as a factual source. Um, you know, you can see here, it's, it's just working out. I don't know if you guys can read that, but it's sort of a breakdown of the, the different characters and what they might look like. Uh, you know, George Lucas thought that the, the costume should borrow from things like Westerns. So obviously there's a, there's a heavy Western influence in a lot of the costumes in the first film. Um, you can see some sketches here for Vader on the far left and for the Imperial Guards, uh, the Imperial Gunners on the lower right. You know, some of the costumes, like the Gunner, for example, I don't think Ralph McQuarrie ever drew. So those were instances where, where John Mahler had to step in and really set a tone based on what had already been established. 
Uh, here's a couple drawings for Leia's ceremonial dress. And in the lower right, you see Luke's ceremonial outfit uh, with the, the brown trousers, very similar to what Harrison Ford wore in Empire and Jedi, and the, uh, the black shirt. These are some photos of his diary from Empire, which is a separate book, which he also still has. And when I first talked to him, Empire was the thing that I really wanted to ask him about because we had a great archival interview on the first film that was done uh, for publicity after the first film when he really walked through the outfits and said what the, the influence was in each one and how it came to be. But we didn't have anything like that on Empire. We had almost nothing in the way of vintage interviews for Empire. Um, and in talking to him, he said he really wanted to take it to the next level, which I think was a common theme on Empire. I think they were all trying to outdo Star Wars in a way, and he felt that the outfits should become a little bit more involved, a little bit more going on with them. Um, I think that got reined back a little by Herman Kirshner, the director, and what we see on screen in the end is a little bit more in the, in the tone of the first film, where it's just a little bit simpler. But it was fascinating to see some of his drawings, like what you're seeing here, from these very elaborate Cloud City costumes. Um, with the breastplates and the capes and everything. Moving on from there, we also had access to what they called the Costume Bible on Return of the Jedi. So here you're seeing a couple of pages out of the Costume Bible for the Rebel pilots, uh, where they were documenting exactly what fabrics they're using, exactly what colors they're using, really so they have a record of it if they need to go back and make more or anything like that. Here's some notes on a, a costume for a skiff guard for Return of the Jedi. And you know, when you think about Star Wars costumes, you don't just have the main characters. It's not just Luke and Han and Leia and Vader. You have this whole ensemble of background players, all of whom have to be wearing something. Um, and so there's a huge amount to try to design there and, and bring to life. And uh, you know, with Jedi, they had so many monsters in, in the palace. And one of the things that Nilo said was Phil Tippett came to him and said, hey, can you start drawing costumes for some of these monsters? Because if you put a costume on it, then we don't have to do the body. We can just do the head and the hands and the feet. <laughs> so there's a practical side to it as well. So I want to show you guys, this is Angels, which is a major motion picture costume rental company in London. Uh, it still exists today, so that photo is one that I took when I, I went there a couple years ago while we were researching this. And down in the basement, they have the original window from Berman's and Nathan's, which was the costume shop at the time they did Star Wars. Uh, Berman's was bought out later by Angels. Angels is maybe the biggest costume house in the world. I'm not sure, but it's huge. But if you look at that picture, going through those racks, that is what a, a costume rental facility is like. And a number of the costumes on the first film did come out of a rental facility. So it was literally John Mallow and his team people like Ron Beck and Colin Wilson going through the rails saying, okay, well, what can we pull out here that's going to make sense in a, you know, a movie set in a galaxy far, far away? Uh, and I think they went straight to the ethnic section. They pulled a lot of robes and cloaks and very simple things. You know, George Lucas said he wanted people to not notice the costumes. He wanted them to be familiar but unique. Um, and, and so they were able to use a lot of subtle rental pieces like that. Um, an example would be the Imperial Officer costume. They were planning to use these tunics on the left, which are from a, a war film called the Blue Max, but Burns and Nathans would not let them take the buttons off the coats. And one of George's stipulations was no buttons, no visible fasteners, no zippers, because he felt those were too Earth, you know, too our world, and not something that they would have in another world. 
So Bourbons wouldn't let them take the buttons off these jackets and they had to make their own. But you can see the influence there. You can see where they came from, the high collar and the, uh, the fold-over closure on the front. And I believe John and his brother were experts in military costumes. Yeah, that's right. The whole Malo family actually is very known in the UK for being military historians. I think it starts with John's father and, and then he has two other brothers, all of whom have worked as military advisors. Uh, they're all well-known collectors of military and uniforms and patches and that sort of thing. And I think that was one of the things that George Lucas really liked about John Malo when he first met him was, you know, here's a guy who understands military, uh, which, which was certainly an element in Star Wars. And obviously, Gillia said, you know, what is a costume? And on a Star Wars movie, that's probably a more complex question than on a lot of other movies. So it involved a lot of disciplines outside of traditional costuming, like creature effects. You know, here we're looking at Stuart Freeborn making uh, the Chewbacca mask. There's also a team that knit the Chewbacca bodysuit. These are not costumes that you would make for your average movie, you know. Some films, costumes are, they all come from the Gap or the shopping mall, you know. They're just, they're bought, they're off the rack. But with a Star Wars film, you've got to have specialists who can create things out of foam latex and fiberglass and vacuum-formed plastic and things like that. So, in addition to that, the, the art department, uh, you know, people like Norman Reynolds did a huge amount of work on the C-3PO costume, for example. I think it was a major, major effort to get Anthony Daniels into something that made him look like a robot. Um, you know, it was months and months for those guys working on that costume, and, and I'm sure you've heard Anthony Daniels talk about what an uncomfortable costume it is to wear, because it's very difficult to take a hard shell and make it wrap around a you human know, body. It's, it's funny, because just the other day I rewatched Metropolis, and you know, everybody knows that the C-3PO costume was, was inspired by Metropolis, but in rewatching that movie, I realized that robot never moves. <laughs> it just sits there and lies there. So yeah. I was taking a big step forward. Yeah, there you go. They hadn't figured it out yet. Yeah. Uh, this is Brian Muir in the lower left corner. I believe he's here this weekend, so maybe you guys will see him. Uh, he sculpted Darth Vader and a number of the other pieces, such as the, uh, the Death Star droid that we're seeing here. There's also another key sculptor named Liz Moore who did the Stormtrooper and a number of other pieces. Um, who was very sadly killed a few years after the film, but who should get a lot of credit for laying down in three-dimensional form what a lot of these characters would look like. This is a shot of the costume department on Empire. Uh, so this is just to give you an idea of, of what it was like in the wardrobe department at L Street. It's pretty simple, really. It's just, you know, some rails hung up at the top that you can hang clothes on. And I don't know if you can see at the back, I think there's washer and dryer back there for <laughs> taking care of the costume between takes. One of the first costumes they started on for Empire was the Super Trooper, which became Boba Fett, uh, obviously a fan favorite, and maybe you guys are aware of this, maybe you've seen the video, but they, they did actually develop it as a white costume, and the concept that it would be weathered and battle damaged, and it would be the, the olive and the multicolored scheme sort of came later. Uh, and the Boba Fett helmet came out of a, a concept that Ralph McQuarrie did for Imperial Snowtrooper Commander. So I think when they started on Empire, they knew that they were gonna have a snow world. So one of the first things that McQuarrie and Johnson started sketching was anything related to the, to the snow planet, including the soldiers who would be there. And George Lucas liked this costume, and you can see there it's labeled Imperial Snowtrooper, but he liked that helmet, and he said, why don't we develop that into the bounty hunter? 
Uh, on the left here, we're seeing a Joe Johnston concept for a Rebel Snowtrooper uniform. So similar process to the first film, John Mahler received material from the U.S. Art Department. Um, he would see sketches that Joe Johnston did and McCory did, and that was his jumping off point to say, okay, what do we have to do and, and what's it going to look like? So on the right, you're seeing Mahler's sketch for the Hoff Rebel Soldier. Um, and if you look at the helmet, you can see he was basically just redrawing what Johnston had in mind for the helmet. And obviously in the film, they're not wearing helmets at all. It, it evolved once again into a, a simpler cap, as you can see here. Uh, I love this costume. This is one of my favorite costumes. And it was a lot of fun to see that in person. I thought this was an interesting story. Uh, in talking to John Malo, one of the most challenging costumes on Empire, which you wouldn't necessarily think of, is the Bestman Security Guard. And it's a very simple costume. It's their characters that don't do a huge amount in the movie, so it kind of goes unnoticed. But apparently they spent a huge amount of time trying to work out what these guys were going to look like. Um, and you can see in, in Mala's journal on the right there some of the different concepts. And I'll show you here. These are eight different costume sketches that reside in the archives today. And you can see the wildly varied looks that they were toying with. I mean, look at the guy in the lower left corner. You know, look at that helmet. I mean, it's, it's nothing like... It's like Mobius. Yeah, it's, it's, it really does. Very different to, to anything that we see in the film. And I guess they were just having a hard time coming up with something that Kirshner and Kurtz felt was right. And it sounded like, uh, you know, at times, Kirshner and Lucas would have uh, differences in opinion on, on how an outfit might look. And so Malo had to try to appease both of them. And in the end, what they did was sort of revert back to the first film and, and go with a very simple uniform. Here's a photo of a prototype Bestman security guard. It's pretty different again, you know. It's, uh, some of you guys may notice that the chest plate that he's wearing there is actually the same thing that the sand troopers the Imperial Sand Troopers had in the first film on their shoulders. So it's probably something that they had lying around and they re-dyed it, repainted it, and thought they could possibly repurpose it. But again, the final costume wound up being a little bit different. Uh, you can see on the sketch on the right there a little insignia. It looks like maybe a cloud or something. I think that was one of Mala's concepts for a cloud logo. You know, one thing that Mala did really establish in these films is the logo. So that famous rebel insignia and the Imperial cause that is on all, on all kinds of products and, and merchandise and everything today. That's straight out of Malo's drawings, and it's just him sitting there doodling a hundred different things until, you know, somebody says, yeah, that's it. And he said that was really his working process in, in, in the whole, was just to get out the sketchbook and keep drawing until he hit something that he thought was right, present it to his directors, and, and see what they thought. So this is starting on Return of the Jedi. Uh, you can see Aggie Rogers there, second from left, uh, between Howard Kazanjian and Richard Marfan. There's also George Lucas and production designer Norman Reynolds. And then on the far right is the other costume designer, Neil Rodas Jamero. And I believe this is a photo taken during one of the very early meetings where Nilo and Aggie had worked out all their concepts for, for what these costumes would look like. Nilo had done sketches for all of them, and they basically had to present it to George uh, to get his approval that, that they were good to move ahead. And um, Nilo said that was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of his life. <laughs> and he said that uh, they went through it all, and they finished, and George said very, very little, and then he walked off, and Nilo stood there and said, okay, what does that mean? And someone says, it means you're good to go. <laughs> so this is that same costume department on Return of the Jedi. 
Um, and you can see here they're prepping all the stormtroopers. They made all new stormtroopers for Jedi. I think the, the costumes they had built for the first film, which were also used in Empire, were shot at this point. So they made about 50 new outfits. And you know you can imagine what it's like to sit there and try to work out how these components are going to fit together. Maybe some of you know because you've built your own costumes. But you know just figuring out how to make the legs attach and everything. They said it was a real job, you know, real engineering feat, and again, different to something you would have to do on a, on a typical film. Uh, on the right here, we have the U.S. costume department. So Jedi is the first time that the majority of the outfits were done out of the U.S. rather than the U.K., but there was still some work done in the U.K., basically with the legacy costumes, so things like the Stormtroopers, things like Darth Vader, things that they already had the molds and storage for there that they could pull out and, and crank out new versions. Uh, but most of the new costumes that had not appeared in the prior films were made by the U.S. costume department, led by Aggie Rogers, who you see at the front there, uh, holding her, her son. A couple other key teams to mention. On the left, uh, the Plastic Boys, who did all of the, the new helmets and armor and things, like the Biker Scout and the Imperial Guard helmet for Return of the Jedi. And then on the right, the Ewok costume team, who were also out of the U.K., um, and working basically under Stuart Freeborn, but they had to build something like 90 Ewok costumes. Uh, and you can imagine what it's like trying to serve the, or trying to sew the, work with the, the false fur. Um, you know, I think that was a real job. The Ewok actors, apparently they took molds of all of their hands and feet so that they could make the gloves and the, the shoes fit properly. These are just some early sketches for a biker scout. Um, this sort of gives you a feeling for the, the transition that a costume may go through from concept to realization. I mean, look at that guy on the right, it's pretty different to the final biker. Um, yeah, he's cool though. Maybe they should use that one. I like this story a lot. When I met Pete Ronzani, who led the Plastic Boys, uh, he said that they needed a little insignia to put on the side of the Biker Scout helmet. And so he said, how about my insignia? So he took his company logo, turned it 90 degrees, and stuck it on the side of a Biker Scout helmet. And Nilo said by the time he figured out Pete had done that, the costumes were halfway to England. So you will watch that in the movie. And if you look, it's a P and an R for Pete Ronzani turned on its side. And, uh, I'm afraid Disney's going to have to lock down the room now. <laughs> Nobody's getting out of here. <laughs> That's in the book. <laughs> This is another good story from the book, which hopefully you guys have read. Uh, the softball glove helmet. So, softball was always a big thing at Lucasfilm, I guess. They still have a softball field there today at the ranch, so I've never seen anyone play. No, it, once we moved to San Francisco, that kind of fell apart. Did you ever play? I played and injured myself instantly. <laughs> uh, so, one day they were out there, and I guess as a joke, Marty, uh, sorry, Wade Childress, who's the engineer that you're seeing in the photo there, had a softball glove on his head, and Nilo said, hey, that looks like a good concept for a helmet. So the next day, he had him put the glove back on his head, took a Polaroid of it, and sort of sketched out the outline of the rest of the helmet. So these are the Polaroids that led to, to the final Lando in disguise helmet. And uh, I guess this just shows that inspiration comes from all places. Here's some good shots of the Rebel Pilot helmets. In the first two films, the Rebel Pilots really only wore one kind of helmet. Um, they, they went to a fairly di different direction for Jedi. You know, the A-Wing and the B-Wing pilots have got sort of a wraparound, almost more like a, a, a headset, an earphone type of helmet. And the Y-Wing helmet uh, was 
a helmet that covered the jaw as well, so it was more like a full safety helmet, a crash helmet, which was different from what they'd had in the past. And when we looked through Nilo's drawings in the archive, you can see that they had really thought through every element of this stuff. So the Y-Wing pilot helmet, which is what you're seeing on the left there, Pete Ranzani's holding one, the concept was that this thing was different plates that would break away. So if there was an accident or something and you need to get out of it quickly, you could hit a button and these plates would sort of blast off in all directions. And obviously watching the movie, you'd never get any of that, but I love the fact, you know, researching this stuff, that you see how much thought and, and conscious design went into every element of it. And also, everybody was free to, to contribute. I mean, just a shout out to, to Paul Houston, who actually designed that basic uh, pilot helmet. Right? Yeah, I, all, think, I, think, I think he did the Endor Trooper helmet, or the Endor Endor very Trooper similar, Sorry, the one yeah. they called the Donut Helmet, which is sort of like a green ring over a softer cap. Right, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've mentioned a few people, but obviously everyone in ILM and, and uh, everyone in the costume departments on all these films had an element in something. And like you say, I think uh, any idea is a good idea, regardless of where it came from on these films, right? Yeah, and it's great because Paul started there in 1975, and he's still working at ILM today, I see him in the hallways. Is he the only person? No, Dennis Merrin is still there. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there are a few other people. So this is a fun one. This is Darth Vader's reveal helmet. And what you're seeing on the left there is the one that they built for Empire, which we see for just a moment uh, when Vader's in the meditation chamber. And when I researched, I found they, they actually kept the same neck piece. So the neck piece that you're seeing at the back there is the same one in both films, but the, the face and the top of the helmet, the dome, were rebuilt for Jedi. Um, I don't know if you can tell, but the cut lines are different in where the mask attaches to the lower half of it between the two films. These are some pictures of, of the helmet under construction, just putting the different greeblies on it. You know, greeblies is a, a term that George Lucas used to describe any kind of little detailed bit that gave something a, a hint of authenticity and that made it seem like it was a piece that really functioned. And I think the prop guys were just constantly scouring electronic stores and aircraft scrap guards and just anywhere they could go that they could find little bits of machinery, you know, industrial elements, something that someone else had designed for another reason uh, that they could repurpose to lend authenticity to their film. So these are some photos of the, the Darth Vader reveal helmet under construction, uh, which was, was built by a, a technician named Brian Archer in the UK. And those are dentistry pieces? I believe they are, right, yeah, they're dental expanders, right? So if you need to push your teeth apart, you can use gizmos from Vader's helmet. Uh, here's some more Darth Vader photos for you. These are... Darth Vader and Son. There's a Darth Vader promotional costume. So outside of the costumes they had to build for the films, they also built a number of costumes that were for use at promotional appearances. So if Darth Vader's going to appear at a film premiere, or if he's going to go out and hug babies, or whatever he's going to do, <laughs> uh, you've got to have costumes for that. So you can see on the left, they built six or seven of these Vader touring costumes at Industrial Light and Magic after Return of the Jedi. I think that's, that's all we have really for slides and photos. Do you guys have any questions? Does anyone want to... Ask anything. The way we're going to do this is all you have to do is put your hand up, and I'm going to come out there and uh, take some questions. Like from you, sir. What's your name? Where are you from? Stand up, please. Brett from San Francisco. I uh, just wanted to know if there's a digital copy of the book. Um, not yet, no. Um, I don't know if you guys are 
planning one, or we haven't heard about it. Not, not as, as of yet. <laughs> All right, we have another question. From the young lady coming over here, what's your name? Heather. Where are you from? Virginia. And what's your question? Um, I was very surprised to learn that the Princess Leia costumes from A New Hope were made of silk, because um, the common knowledge was there was some synthetic knit. So um, I know in Empire Strikes Back, she wears the same costume again in a different material. What happened? Did her costumes get lost? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story, that one, because they do have what, what we'll call the classic Leia costume in the archives. Uh, but I actually didn't realize until fairly late in the game that it's not the costume that she wears in the first film. It's actually the costume she wears at the end of Empire, and they are slightly different. I think you can tell sort of by the height of the turtleneck, whether it's the outfit from the, the first film and the second film. Um, so we never actually referenced the, the physical costume from the first film, her main white dress. Um, we actually don't know where it is. It's an interesting really? story. All, all of the significant, I say all the principal costumes from the first film, Luke, Han, Leia, and Vader, uh, those four costumes are MIA at this point. Uh, there are elements of them that have surfaced, but it's possible they went back to Burmans and Nathan's, the costume shop at the end of production. You know, a lot of the material in the first film was, was made for hire and did go back to the costume shop. Uh, it's possible that they are in George Lucas's basement. <laughs> they, they aren't. I've been in the basement. No costumes. Seriously. I think for me that was going through the archives. That was the most surprising. Is what pieces were missing from a lot of the costumes, and that's a lot of what our time was spent cataloging. Like we have this piece, searching to find, you know, that piece that goes with that. Looking at stills to make sure we got the right pieces. Yeah, because when, you know, when they wrapped, let's say, on Return of the Jedi, they built 30 different skiff guards for that movie. They didn't necessarily put them all into nice costume bags when they wrapped the film and say, okay, this is Barada number three. You know, they took the bandoliers off and put them in the bandolier box. And so we sort of had to, in some cases, go through the bandolier box and say, okay, where is this bandolier that we need for this costume yeah, or whatever it might be? I don't know if you can go back to the one where you show one of the costumes that was photographed, because I remember that was a real... Puzzle that you guys were constantly having. There we go. The past one. Oh, uh, the. Oh yeah. This one. Yes. yes. Yeah, it was a real puzzle because you only had a certain number of mannequins and a certain number of people who could do it in a certain time. <laughs> Can you talk to that? Because I know it was really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, archiving these costumes and cataloging them for the team there at the archives is kind of an ongoing process. And I know the, the wing that we were working in, the costume wing, I don't even think that was part of the building until maybe five or six or seven years ago. Um, so a lot of these things have just been packed away in boxes for many, many years. And there's a portion of the collection that they've been able to properly catalog and, and archive now. Um, and so it's, it's very nice and neat. And you say, hey, I'd like to see Luke's outfit from Empire. And they say, here it is. But you know, when you get down to some of the more obscure characters, like a skiff guard, it's not necessarily cataloged as well. And that was really where we had to do more digging. And like, we found multiple costumes where they had slightly different tie-dye. You know, what was that for? This is more brown, this is more green. Some were tests, some were never used. And trying to figure out what was real and what wasn't. The problem with the mannequins is, you know, they act, they're built, the costumes are built for that actors who are all varying sizes and fitting Princess Leia's who Carrie was very small on mannequins, it was a lot of, well, we had to saw off a lot. 
we sawed off the hips and the heels and the calves to get the pants over. And that was after you ordered a custom mannequin, Yes, right? it is. And you were like dry cleaning stuff as you were doing that. It was your real operation. Yeah, I mean, the, the photography in the book I think is amazing, but it was, a, it was a real effort to get that done. I mean, that photo shoot was something like, what, two or three weeks? Yes, it was. Uh, and that's with a team of people working on it, dressing costumes. I think it's something like 90 costumes that we were dressed We had in about book. four people working, prepping mannequins, and then the photographer working, and when he would be done, we'd move that one out, move the next one in, and then try and, like, we'd have a team going through to steam it, make it all look great. It was a lot of lifting. At one point, right, we thought we were done, and one of the costumes, I noticed there was a problem. Um, right? It was Luke's, or was it? The flat jacket was on flat. backwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I never would have noticed that. Yeah. Right, no, it was the X-Wing pilot, they realized that the, the white bib had been dressed on backwards, but then, when I was going through the film, I did actually find a guy who was wearing his backwards. So it is actually canon and correct. <laughs> Before you send us any nasty emails about that one, please know we checked and it's good to go. I just we have uh, we have another audience question out here. Yeah, we're here in the center of the room with Diane from Arizona. What's your question? Okay, on Han Solo's jacket in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Are there decorative stitching on the sleeve below the pocket? Yes. Okay, and is it like two lines in a space and two lines in a space? I think so. I can tell you there's actually one of those original jackets is actually on display down in the exhibit hall at the Prop Store booth. Uh, I work for a company called Prop Store. I, I manage the LA office of Prop Store, and we're set up, we're exhibiting down here. We're at booth 1140, and we do have some original pieces on display. Um, so if you guys want to come through and, and take a look, if you want to see that jacket, it is actually down there right now. Diane, those were very specific questions. You must be, <laughs> you must be creating a Han Solo costume. Um, yeah, actually I belong with the Rebel Legion, and we're very, very picky about matching what's on the screen. There you go, that's why you guys are awesome. Uh, who else? Oh, over here. Yes, sir. Right over here. It's like the Donahue show here. <laughs> yes, sir, what's your name and what's your question? Hi, I'm Steve from Thousand Oaks, California. How are you? I got uh, two quick questions. How big are those archives? I'm curious. And second, um, I, there's obviously like a, an example, Boba Fett, his costume colors change from one movie to the other. Were you given an explanation why they did such things? Good question. That was a tricky one. Yeah, we had Joe Johnston come look at the Boba Fett stuff. I thought I think you might want to mention what he said. Yes, yeah, he did come up and, and look through that because obviously with Boba Fett there isn't just one costume, there's something like five different Boba Fett helmets. Some of them are stunt helmets that were made for Jedi, so they're rubber for when he was doing wire work and stuff out over the barge. Um, some of them never appeared on screen, they were, they were used for touring purposes, promotional appearances and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, one of the things I really wanted to figure out was, was why, because when Joe Johnston painted the Boba Fett costume for the first time, he gave it a, a real colorful paint job with, uh, you know, the, the wrist gauntlets, for example, red and yellow. But then when we see them on screen in Empire, they're green. And uh, that was something I really wanted to figure out, is why did these get changed back to green before they filmed in Empire? But that was an answer I couldn't get. So if anyone knows, please tell me. <laughs> I, I have a question, speaking of costumes that change. Uh, what can you tell us about Darth Vader and the evolution of that costume from Star Wars to Jedi? He starts out kind of dusty looking in Star Wars, and by the time you get the Jedi, he's, you know, beautiful and shiny and uh, looks a lot bigger than he did, even in some cases. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the real obvious changes in Vader is just that the, the lower vent on the mask is significantly bigger in Empire. And I was told that was for two reasons. One was just to uh, aid airflow in the mask, just so David Prowse could breathe a little easier. And uh, two, so other people could hear him a little better. So if he's playing a scene and delivering some lines, something on set, people can actually hear him. But, you know, I think that the evolution is really just a natural one where it's, hey, we're going to make a, a new film here. You know, the old costumes obviously were used for filming for several months. They were fairly beat up, and it's, okay, we've got we've to get some new uniforms well. We've got a little bit more time. How can we improve on what we did before? And they did that across the board. You know, they did that with C-3PO, and they, I think they did that even outside of costumes. You know, they, they built a new Millennium Falcon model for The Empire Strikes Back because they wanted it to be able to make more dynamic moves in space, and so they needed a smaller one. Um, and so, you know, the Vader costume does go through several changes through all the films. But it's meant to be the same costume on screen, really. You know, they're just organic changes to, to aid, I guess you would call them practical changes as much as anything else. Nothing implied in the costume to influence the story. In I don't think so. Not with that character. I think it's really meant to be consistent. <laughs> Excuse me, I was wearing one of Dave Prowse's helmets. Sorry. <laughs> uh, actually, we're here with Dan from Florida. What's your question, sir? Uh, yeah, I have a question about the weapons. Um, specifically, I was wondering if the costume designers, if they had a role in trying to decide the look of the weapons, if they worked together with another department that made the weapons, or were they not involved at all, you know? Generally, weapons would, would be considered props, um, so they would not necessarily fall to the costume designer. You know, on the first film, Roger Christian did a lot of the weapons. Yeah. He was a set decorator. Yeah, and I, he was, we were just shooting stuff for the the version of the behind the scenes stuff of the Star Wars that it was just released on you know iTunes and all that. And he was telling me, you know, stories about because he designed Han Solo's blaster, Princess Leia's, and he built the first lightsaber. And so one of the things he did, and I'm sure I'm gonna get it wrong, but the the stormtrooper rifle blaster thing is he's left-handed and he designed it for left-handers, and then of course most of the extras are right-handers. So that caused a lot of problems. And I, so sometimes I think there were mix-ups between the prop department and the costume department. Yeah, and I think, you know, those, everything has to work hand-in-hand. Hand. So, you know, with Star Wars costumes, there's a lot of holsters. So Gunnam has to fit in a holster, and a holster has to fit on an actor, and it's part of the costume. You know, with the Biker Scout, for example, they were trying to figure out what the Biker Scout gun would look like, and then they were trying to figure out how the biker would carry that on his hard, hard armor, and they wound up with that boot holster, which, which, um, you know, is, is a fun little touch. But I think there, the, the production designer and the prop department team, the, the prop team and the costume team would have been working very closely. And actually, I'd be remiss though, speaking of lightsabers, you made a discovery in the costume art, or in the archives while you were there with the lightsabers. Yeah, we were in there a few months ago working on another book, uh, actually a book on Ralph McQuarrie art, which we're doing a discussion panel on tomorrow, if any of you guys are here. And, um, we found one of the original dueling prop lightsabers with the reflective scotch light blade that you guys may have heard about in the past. And I think you can see it in that new iTunes yeah, release. I think you can, yeah. So, yeah, you can. That, that, the great, great packages that you put in the uh, digital releases, really good stuff, and that is one of the moments when they reunite the hilt with the, uh, with the blade. Yeah, yeah. With, the, with the original creator of the lightsaber. Yeah. I, think, I think someone else asked uh, how many pieces of the archives. I don't know if we answered that, but I mean, 
the archives are vast. It's really everything, just about everything, the majority of the assets from all of George Lucas's films. So, you know, there are thousands of costumes and tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of costume elements, you know, holsters and belts. And yeah, and in fact, there's, there's, there's the prop and art archives, there's the costume archives, there's the film archives, and then there's also the research library archives are all in this big sort of complex, so it's pretty cool. Can I ask a question? <laughs> of course. Um, I just wondered, when we got into the archives, was there any one piece that surprised you the most that you weren't expecting to find there, or, uh, or to look the way it did? I guess there were just really fun moments of discovery. Like, you remember we were looking through some of the different boxes, and there was a box of Stormtrooper belts, and then in the Stormtrooper belt box was the Super Trooper Boba Fett uh, white belt which had obviously been put in that box because it was a white belt. And, uh, you know, it's just fun to go through and, and sort of browse, so to speak, and, and to come across things like that. But, you know, my favorite costume is right here, the Hoth Rebel Trooper. I love seeing this. I love seeing things like, they're in the book, the, the Hoth Rebel Troopers that were, that were re-dyed for Return of the Jedi, that were brown camouflage, because I'd never heard that story, I'd never seen any photos of that, never heard anything about it, and then there's a rack of 25 of them, and it's like, what are these? And then you, you, know, you start going through the documents and the, the, the reference materials, and you work out exactly what they are, and it's like, okay, this is the path they went down that somebody vetoed at some point, and, uh, and didn't appear in the movie. You got pretty excited about the Mark II when we found that. Oh, the Mark II Stormtrooper. Yes, yeah, that's a good one, too. I got excited about a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking about uh, the, the, the Hoth Rebel Trooper, we have Steve from Toronto here who has a question about a very curious photo from Star Wars costumes. Yes, um, to the uh, the kids' costumes when they were filmed for the Force Perspective. If they're still in the archives, and I, if I recall if they were in the book or not, if you can talk a little bit about those kids' uh, Hoth, Hoth Rebel Trooper costumes. Yes, I think what you're referring to there is, is basically the Force Perspective costumes. Um, and, and the concept was you would have kids wearing scaled-down versions of the exact same outfit, and they would be walking around in the background, and the Force Perspective would make the, something like the Hoth Rebel hangar seem even bigger than the set actually was. Um, and I don't know if, if those were actually used, meaning if you watch the film, if there are kids walking around in the background or not. Um, but it's it's a trick that was employed on several movies. I know that they did the same thing on Alien. They built the, the spacesuits in a smaller scale and Ridley Scott's children wore them. Um, unfortunately, those outfits are not in the archives, so we did not get to see them. We only had the, the archival photos. Great. Hey, we're here with Karen from Orlando. What's your question? Um, considering some, some of the pictures you had up there from the Rebel pilots, and you can see I'm a fan of the Rebel pilots, but I noticed there was a lot of, and perhaps my friend from the Rebel Legion over here can uh, back me up on this, there were a lot of pictures of Rebel pilots with different flak vests, different helmets, different this, different that, nothing really matched up. And I was just wondering if that was more an oversight or just not having somebody there um, checking continuity, or was it just a matter of, um, this is the parts we had left over, just wear it? Well, they're certainly designed in a very deliberate way, you know, certainly the, the green pilot is meant to go with one chest pack that's meant to go with one helmet, um, the red one exactly the same, and the gray one for the Y-Wing exactly the same, you know, everything is very deliberately de designed, it wasn't like a, a 
mix and match scenario like you might have had on the first film where they're working with stock garments out of Burmans and aprons. So there might be a few variances from that in the film. There might be a few pilots who have slightly mismatched components, and that probably is just down to continuity and dressing on the day. But I think on the whole, when you look at them, the, the, the continuity, the consistency is, is, is pretty good. Great. I think we have time for one more question. We have a young fan here with us. This is Jonah from New Jersey, and he has an interesting question about uh, some of the guys who uh, make up the uh, 501st. Um... Where did Lucasfilm get the idea for the Stormtrooper? That's a good question. I'll let you take it. <laughs> you know, uh, I was born in New Jersey, I just like to say. Uh, <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't know. I never asked George that specific question. I think, you know, the idea was that they were, uh, they needed a bunch of bad guys. I think in George's mind, originally they might have been clones, you know early on, but then that changed. And I think, you know, I was thinking of the sort of Nazi stormtroopers, you know, from World War II. I think that's probably where the idea came from. But then he did something really odd, which was he made their costumes white, which was, at the time, very strange. And those of us old enough to see, remember seeing the movie for the first time, it's like, you know, good guys wear white. And suddenly all the bad guys were wearing white. You know, one of the things that he talked about in one of the interviews was just trying to place the technological world, so anything imperial, anything like the Death Star, that sort of thing, in a black and white color scheme, and the, the human world in uh, sort of a, a beige, warm, tan, brown color scheme. So, you know, when you look at it, the, the Imperials are all in shades of black, gray, whatever, and the good guys, for the most part, uh, Including C3PO, but not R2D2, are uh, are in warm warm tones, browns and things. Right, but then he the same thing that he did in the prequel trilogy. He, he blurred the lines because Leia is dressed in white, mm. but she's obviously you know the heroine. So he's playing with archetypes and, and uh, doing a great job. Wow! Thank you so much, all three of you, for bringing your knowledge with us, and thank you for the book. It's incredible. And as Brandon said. Tomorrow at 11.30, uh, Brandon will be back and uh, Jonathan will be back to talk about the new Ralph Corey book coming up. So thank you all so much and have a great rest of your day at Celebration. Thank you. Thank you.